0: Hello and welcome back to the Historians Magazine podcast. My name is Chris and today I am joined by historian, author, broadcaster and podcaster Matt Lewis. Thank you very much Chris. Matt, that's welcome a, that's a to the podcast. Introduction. How are you
1: doing? Um, makes me sound very busy and, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me.
0: No problem at all. So it is no secret whatsoever that I'm a huge fan of Eleanor of Aquitaine and her husband Henry II. And I'm very, very excited to be talking to you about them both today. So, as always, a good place to start is at the beginning. So where are we and who uh, are we our two We are
1: in a huge chunk of the 12th century. Um, so Eleanor is the older of the two by almost 10 years. Um, so there's actually a little bit of dispute around her year of birth. It's traditionally been given as 1122, but there was a, a family genealogy that was produced in 1137 that described her then as 13, which would put her date of birth more likely to be around 1124. So either 1122 or 1124, there's there's no real consensus around which one of those is, is absolutely accurate. And really, this is a symptom of being a woman in the Middle Ages, even one as important as a daughter of the Duke of Aquitaine. They just didn't record dates of birth particularly well. Anything beyond a first son of a king and you're, you're liable to be struggling. Um, So she is the oldest daughter of William the 10th, the Duke of Aquitaine. And every Duke of Aquitaine has to be called William. So they're all Williams of varying numbers. Her dad happens to be the 10th one. Um, She has one sister and she does have a brother, but her brother passes away quite young, unfortunately, which leaves her as her father's heir. Uh her mother, Einor of Chateleray, is uh also passes away when Eleanor is fairly young. And I mean, even her mother is a symptom of the kind of scandal that attaches itself to not even just Eleanor, the Dukes of Aquitaine are very good at attracting scandal. <clears throat> so Einor is the daughter of Eleanor's grandfather's mistress, if that's not complicated enough. Um so Eleanor's granddad, William the Ninth, had an affair with a woman called Dangereuse de Chateau Leroux, which is a fantastic name being called Dangerous. Um, and she was she was already married. They had this sort of whirlwind, long-lasting, passionate love affair. Uh, there were stories that William the Ninth used to go into battle with a picture of Dangereuse on his shield um as a kind of lucky charm. And so Einor was her daughter by her marriage, so she's not actually related to William the Tenth, but you know, there's that kind of whiff of scandal. And it's thought um, in some quarters that Eleanor's name is derived from her mother, so Alia Iornor in Latin is another Ionor, so daughter of Iornor. So, um, but by eleven thirty seven, Eleanor is uh, orphaned, so her mother's died some years before. Her father heads off on pilgrimage into to what is now Spain, to Santiago de Compostela, uh, perhaps as a result of having been told off by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. We're, we're told that Bernard visited William X and told him off for getting involved in a papal schism uh, and that as Bernard shouted at him at the church door, William X collapsed, you know, potentially had some kind of stroke or something like that, um, which just made Bernard look incredibly powerful and incredibly right. And so... Um, William heads off to Santiago de Compostela. Uh, he's not a particularly old man by this time. There are thoughts that he might remarry and have another son, although he hasn't got round to it yet, uh, but he falls ill on the journey and dies before he gets to, to Santiago de Compostela. Um, Eleanor is then either 13 or 15, depending on when we, we take her date of birth to be, but you know, a young girl, uh, and was left in the care of of some men who very quickly pass her into the hands of their liege lord, Louis VI, the King of France. Um, she's now the heiress to Aquitaine, which is just a vast province that covers most of what we would call Southern France today. It's just a huge piece of land. So incredibly valuable, incredibly important. She's passed into the hands or into the care of Louis VI, who immediately marries her to his son and heir, uh, Louis the Younger. And within... Weeks of that marriage taking place, Louis VI dies. And so by the time they they get back to Paris, he is Louis VII, the King of France, and she is Eleanor, Queen of France. Um, so kind of by 1137, she's already in her mid-teens, the Queen of France. And the, the other half of the duo is Henry. And he's the oldest son of Empress Matilda, another incredible woman from this period. Um, and uh, Geoffrey, the Count of Anjou. So he's born, we know the date he's born, the 5th of March, 1133, because he's an important man. <laughs> Terrible world that they, they lived in. Um, and perhaps most importantly, at the time of his birth, he's the oldest grandson of Henry I, the King of England. So Henry has no surviving son. He's lost his only son in the White Ship um, disaster. He's tried to appoint Empress Matilda as his heir, but there are huge issues with female rule at this time there's there's huge questions over whether people will accept a female ruler and a strong sense that what Henry I really wants to do is hold on till his grandson is old enough that he can succeed. so when he comes along, he is very much viewed as the future for Henry the I, and there are a lot of hopes kind of riding on his shoulders uh, Empress Matilda um, I mean interestingly she holds on to that title of Empress that she's not technically entitled to use. You have to have been crowned by the Pope to be able to be uh, the Holy Roman emperor or, or empress. So she's married to a Holy Roman emperor who was crowned by the Pope uh, and kind of acquires this title of empress that even when she marries count Geoffrey, she kind of hangs on to that title of empress, which we're told, you know, he's not best pleased about that. She's, she's making a, a thing about outranking him. Um, but you know, a hugely impressive woman who fights her cousin Stephen, who pinches the throne from her dad Henry the when he dies. Uh, Stephen sort of swoops in, has himself crowned, and we get this period. His 19 year rule is known as the Anarchy, big civil war in England, when Matilda tries desperately to, f- at first, press her own claim to be the rightful heir to, to Henry the But after a while, she moves into this position of holding that claim open for her son's benefit. So she reverts to waiting till Henry is old enough to take up that claim on his own. And she just keeps that, that flame burning for him. Uh, And and on his father's side, I mean, equally impressive. Geoffrey's dad left Europe when Geoffrey was 16 to head off to be king of Jerusalem. So Henry has this connection to the the throne of Jerusalem in the Holy land too. And his dad at, at 16 was count of Anjou and Maine. Um, and Geoffrey had used the period of the anarchy to make a grab for Normandy. So Normandy was a, an old rival of Anjou, still connected to the English crown at this point. And he he effectively, he takes years in a, a slow conquest of Normandy. And when he eventually gets hold of it, he almost immediately hands it over to, to Henry, his son, and Henry becomes Duke of Normandy, kind of in his mid-teens. And so the, the pair of them are just huge political figures who end up perhaps being far more prominent than they might have been. Uh, they were always going to be important figures, but kind of fusing them together turns them into this absolute machine in Western medieval Europe.
0: Yeah, I mean, thank you for that, by the way. That was a great uh, a great summary of two very important people. It sounds like they both had incredibly traumatic childhoods and, and upbringings in, in very different ways. See, I feel like henry had the more i don't want to say exciting but probably quite an exciting upbringing his his father was um was a powerful count taking taking land from his um uh, from his mother's rival and then poor ellen i just couldn't seem to catch it i mean henry does
1: you know henry invades um, england a couple of times as a young boy so the the pit i I wrote a book about the anarchy too, in which I questioned how anarchic it was because one of the things that Geoffrey does is send Henry over to England for an education at the age of kind of eight or something. Well, you don't do that with your son and heir if it's a an absolute lawless chaos zone. Um, but he was brought up to believe in his entitlement to his grandfather's rights. And he does lead this quite exciting life. So again, you know, he invades England off his own back in his mid teens is completely unsuccessful and has the cheek to go to King Stephen, his rival, and say, is there any chance you could pay my men off so that we can go? Uh, Because I'm kind of stuck here with no money. And he he asks his mom and she says no. He goes and asks his Uncle Robert and Uncle Robert says no. So he just goes to Stephen and and Stephen, you know, interestingly pays him off, pays off his men for them to leave. And and I suspect that that builds up this kind of well of of goodwill and respect between them that that then plays a part in the latter parts of the, the anarchy. But nevertheless, you know, Henry is... He has a strong sense of an adventurer, but also a lot of insecurity in his life. And Eleanor has that too. You know, she is very much thrown around by events. You know, she loses her mom and her brother at an incredibly young age. As there would then be a lot of pressure on her as her father's heir, but also with it hanging over her that as soon as another boy came along, she might lose all of that. And then in her mid-teens, loses her dad and is, is kind of thrown into this situation where she's all of a sudden not just married but now she's queen of France so both of them at at incredibly young ages have been in this kind of melting pot cauldron of political activity and expectation and seen the way that things can be in your control but they can also be massively out of your control.
0: Yeah and it's it's interesting we we keep going back to the anarchy and obviously that's definitely a, a topic for a whole other episode but I always, I always feel quite, and you mentioned Henry's insecurities. I feel quite sorry for Henry. He's named after this illustrious grandfather, in Henry the and there is this expectation, isn't there, that he will become king of England um, at some point. Um, but yeah, I, I, like you said, I find the the relationship with Stephen quite, a, quite a strange one. It was probably quite a, a weird um, dinner time conversation to have with with your mother, the Empress. Um, oh yeah, I've just been with have uh, been with Uncle Stephen, and yeah, you, you, know, do you know what, yeah, Mum, yeah, he's all yeah, right. He's all that, all was, uh, that was quite a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine she'd have been the best pleased with that, but uh, but ultimately, kind of gets her way, doesn't she? With, with Henry eventually becoming Henry the Second. So we've touched on Eleanor and Henry as young people, and you've mentioned that Eleanor isn't initially married to Henry um, at this point, Count of Bonjou. She's married to um, Louis the Seventh of France. So how do we end up with Henry and Eleanor as a? Um, Yeah,
1: I mean it's it's another one of those massively impressive things about Eleanor that I always say she she kind of lived at least three complete medieval lives in her lifetime. You could if she if you separated her life into three parts, kind of marriage to Louis, marriage to Henry, and then what happens after Henry's death. Each one of those would be a magnificent life in its own right. So by the time she marries Henry, she's already lived what we might consider an incredibly full medieval life. Um, and also she's the only woman ever to be queen of both England and France. Um, which is an impressive achievement in itself. Um, in terms of ending up married to to Henry, I mean, any kind of misogynistic medieval chronicler worth his salt would say that it's because Eleanor was a terrible, terrible person. Like all women are. Um, she ruins everything. She's the root of all evil and and all of Louis's problems. Um, but unsurprisingly, that's not the case. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, so in Eleanor's case, she she returns from the Second Crusade. So, you know, as Queen of France, she goes off to the Holy Land on crusade with her husband, Louis. But they return with their marriage in, in a pretty bad way. And this is despite on their way home, they visited the Pope and the Pope has blessed a bed for them to, to have marital relations in together. Uh, which, interestingly, nine months later, she gives birth to a daughter. So... Uh, they must have felt like the Pope's blessing sort of worked, except they didn't get a son. Uh, and during that visit, the Pope specifically forbids them from ever dissolving their marriage or separating, because it's pretty clear that they're not on good terms by this point. And Louis's advisors, I think, seem to have been concerned about the influence that Louis had over, sorry, that Eleanor had over Louis. Um, or at least she was a pretty good person to blame when things went wrong to save having to blame Louis. And they used a lot of the scandals that emerge during the crusade to to kind of drive this wedge between Louis and Eleanor. So we get an incident early on where the the, uh, the armies are crossing a mountain and the guy who's given charge of the, the vanguard is told, wait at the top, we'll all catch up. We don't want to get too separated because then we get picked off by, by kind of bandits and, and um, ambushes and all of that kind of thing. This guy, we're told, gets to the top of the mountain, can't find enough space for the whole army, so he moves on a little bit. They end up getting so strung out that they get attacked by bandits. And because this guy was an Aquitanian, so he was a liegeman man of Eleanor's, she's kind of blamed for this mess up. You know, Louis is almost captured and, and several of his bodyguard are, are killed during the fighting, so it's incredibly serious. And somehow this is twisted into a way to blame Eleanor because it was her liegeman man who kind of ignored the the orders and went on even further. And then we get this incident of her being accused of having an affair with her uncle, Raymond, Prince of Antioch, which seems to me to boil down to Raymond had lots of military advice to give to Louis based on the fact that Raymond had lived his entire life in this region, in this war. Louis ignored him and Eleanor thought they ought to listen to Uncle Raymond because he knows what he's talking about. And the only way that medieval chroniclers seem to be able to rationalise a woman disagreeing with her husband is for her to be having an affair. So all of a sudden you get these rumors that Eleanor was having an affair with her uncle simply because she agreed with his political and military advice against her own husband. And you even get later accounts saying that Eleanor um considered running off and having an affair with Saladin, who's like a ten-year-old boy or something at the time of the Second Crusade. You know, that that's the kind of level of nonsense that, that's being thrown around not long after the crusade. But ultimately as as well, probably the biggest problem, the real crux of the issues in 1152, when they come to end the marriage is that after 15 years together, they've got two daughters, but they've got no son. So Louis has no heir for the Capetian throne, and he's beginning to worry about the insecurity that 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 leads to. So in the, the spring of 1152, Louis and his his barons and his bishops and everyone get together and they they come up with this kind of fairly traditional approach that um, Louis and Eleanor are too closely related to be allowed to marry without papal dispensation, which they never got. So they call it consanguinity, that they're, they're too closely related. Um, the marriage is dissolved despite the Pope having forbidden them from doing just that. And um, at the time... That this is happening, Henry is uh, at Lisieux on the the north coast of Normandy, preparing to invade England. He's he's looking to press his claim uh, to the English throne. He's mustering his forces there, and Eleanor kind of leaves this meeting outside Paris, heads back to towards Aquitaine to Poitou, which is the the capital um, of of Aquitaine, and on her way back, there are two attempts to abduct her and forcibly marry her. The first one comes from Theobald, who's the Count of Brighton Champagne, so a relation of King Stephen. Um, but she manages to evade that. And then the second attempt comes from a man named Geoffrey of Anjou, who is interestingly Henry's little brother. So he makes a, a, a grab for her, but again, she gets prior notice of this, changes her route and manages to avoid him. But this must have driven home as she travelled the the kind of, being pragmatic, the need that she had for a new husband to protect her lands uh, Louis had tried to make a bid to keep control of Aquitaine on behalf of their daughters and she'd managed to Eleanor had managed to argue that she was the Duchess of Aquitaine and so Aquitaine was actually hers but she must have realized that she was in a quite a precarious position she was a desirable um, marriage match now that she's back. You know, on the playing field, people were literally making a grab for her straight away. And so perhaps the best way to security is another husband. But if she needed another husband, she needed one that could be the rival of Louis, someone who could protect Aquitaine and who could stand up against Louis um in in those lands. And I think Henry Henry must have seemed like the obvious, if not the only viable candidate to fulfil those those requirements that Eleanor had. So um, his dad had died the year before in 1151, so he was Duke of Normandy, he was Count of Anjou, um, and Anjou was kind of just to the north of Aquitaine, so their, their land sort of bordered each other. He's about to go and press his claim to be King of England, so if he manages that, he's the, the rival of Louis in terms of prestige and honour in having a crown. We know that they'd met before. So Henry had gone to Paris to do homage to Louis for, for Normandy when he'd been given the Dukedom of Normandy. So we know that they had encountered each other there. And it's quite easy to imagine, you know, eyes meeting across a smoky dance floor. Um, I'm not sure it was anything quite as, as romantic and cinematic in Hollywood as that. Um, but they did know each other. They did, you know, they were aware of each other. We know that Eleanor writes to Henry inviting him to come and marry her. And so Henry, at this muster on the north coast of Normandy, drops everything. I mean, this this is too good an offer for him to turn down. He drops everything. He speeds south. And on the 18th of May, uh, the, the couple are married. And that, that's less than two months after the dissolution of her marriage to Louis. And they'd married without Louis' permission. Both of them were his vassals. Eleanor, arguably one of his most important, significant vassals, as well as being his ex-wife. Louis felt like they should have asked for his permission, uh, and and he was clearly annoyed, really annoyed that these two had got together because they now owned, even ignoring the the play that Henry is about to make for England, with Aquitaine, Maine, uh, Anjou, Touraine, and Normandy, they own kind of the western half of what we now call France, which is much more than Louis controls. This is a time when the Capetian crown struggles to control more than just Paris. You know they have the the Île de France around Paris and everything else relies on these kind of really delicate um ties of power so he's relying on the fealty and the homage of counts and and dukes and barons all over France without much direct control so to see all of this solid block of of France now in the hands of this couple one of whom is his ex-wife was was pretty terrifying For Louis, so we've got kind of Henry at nineteen, got everything going from this guy has half the titles in France and is about to to claim to be King of England before he's twenty. Eleanor, you know, in the late twenties, perhaps around thirty, depending again on when we put her her date of birth, and and it's a problem for Louis. Um, But essentially, they end up married because Eleanor needs someone to to protect her interests, and there is no one better than Henry. And Henry thinks this is too good an offer to turn down.
0: Yeah, it just seems to me as if it was like a perfect place, perfect timing for both Henry and Eleanor. Uh, also, I just want to go back to one of my favourite anecdotes, which is um, papal approved, you know, marital relations, as you put it. I think that's one of the most, uh, to the outside looking in, one of the most un-Catholic things that could happen. But um, the Pope was very, very keen on Eleanor and Henry having a son because, you know, Louis was the one of the most powerful kings in in Western Christendom Western Christendom sorry so you know it makes sense that you know that marriage stays stays together it's as if the pope knew what was going to happen you know just several years later with with two vassals of this king getting married as you quite rightly say causing causing problems i just want to put you on the spot here and ask you for your opinion on eleanor and her apparent affairs you mentioned um Raymond the Handsome of Antioch. Um, and there's also rumors of Henry's own father, Geoffrey of Anjou. How much weight do you put behind those? Do you, like me, think they're complete rubbish? I think absolutely or do nonsense. You have it's
1: political, thing? it's weaponizing Eleanor's sex against her for political purposes. So absolutely you get this story that she she has an affair with Geoffrey while they're in Paris and Henry's doing homage for Normandy. So you get this whole Dear God, Henry's married a woman who slept with his father, which you know at this time in in church terms was a big no no. Um I mean, it's probably a big no no now. I don't know why I'm saying in, at that time in church in church circles it was a big no no. I'm trying to make it sound like it's all right now. I wasn't. Um, so yeah, there's there's the rumours he's had an affair with Jeff. She's had an affair with Geoffrey. There's rumours she's had an affair with her own uncle um, in Antioch. There are rumours that she has an affair with this guy in Aquitaine who is sort of heading up a household. Um, he is, he's married to one of her aunts and, and again, you know, there's the idea that he leads her astray because they're having an affair. I I don't buy any of it. I I think it's all nonsense. I think it's just political game playing. So the, the accusation against Jeffrey is just because her being married to Henry is a huge problem. So people are looking for scandal and roadblocks to put in the way. The thing with Raymond, I think is just because she clearly has her own mind and she would she i can imagine her sitting there and saying to louis uncle raymond is the guy on the spot he knows what he's talking about if he says we should attack this place we should attack it and all louis wanted to do was go to jerusalem as if it was some kind of glorified pilgrimage and and people can only rationalize this disagreeing with your husband disagreeing with the king and then because the the crusade goes abysmally wrong there's the suggestion that was eleanor and and raymond right that you kind of have to find a reason not to criticize Louis. so again you just have to put this whiff of scandal uh, uh, into it so the, the med- in the medieval mind it, women are utterly driven by sex you know they're the daughters of eve they are absolutely insatiable and so they corrupt men who are the the right minded sensible thinking people in society when has that ever been the case um and so they they corrupt men into doing everything that goes wrong. So everything that goes wrong is always a woman's fault, and it normally comes down to sex. And it and this is at least in part because virtually all of the chronicle accounts that we have come from monks who are sat in their cloisters wondering what it's like to touch a woman, probably.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately, and I and I agree, I think it boils down to pure sexism, doesn't it? There is no real getting away from the fact that this is a very misogynistic period in history. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to make sure. I just wanted to get your opinion because there are conflicting views, aren't there, around Eleanor's promiscuous, promiscuity or, or lack thereof? If you, uh, if like like us, you agree that um, she didn't really probably do anything anything wrong. Um, so let's forward fast forward a few years. Henry and Eleanor are married. They have a very successful marriage at the start. They have a gaggle of children. Quite quickly, Eleanor is pretty much constantly pregnant, isn't she? for almost a, she is and kind of a year
1: after their marriage, she has their first son, which must have sent Louis into absolute spirals of apoplexy. He divorced this woman or dissolved their marriage on the basis that they couldn't have a son, and that that must be Eleanor's fault because she's a terrible woman who's had affairs all over the place, so God is punishing her. So for her then to go away, marry, get married straight away and have a son immediately while Louis still can't have one, is then causing Louis to to look at himself and, and people to look at him and think, maybe you're the problem.
0: I would love to be a fly on the wall when Louis was getting the news that A, they got married or B, like you said, the birth of a son after so many years of trying. And you know anyone that knows anything about medieval history knows how important having a son was. It was pretty much the first and most important job of, of any woman queen you know all the way down the social hierarchy so yeah i would have loved to have seen louise louise I, I imagine there were some jewel goblets thrown at years. the wall
1: and some um, middle french swear words
0: absolutely absolutely um so yeah very successful marriage in terms of children henry seems to manage to wrap up the remnants of the anarchy quite easily i say quite easily i'm, I'm Probably boiling down a very difficult few years to um, for the sake of a story, but the kind of honeymoon period doesn't last forever, does it? They they do have their problems. What were the things that Henry and Eleanor faced? What what kind of things were causing and Probably their
1: a, a couple of things to start off with, at least, and, and until their sons get old enough to cause trouble. Um, I mean I mean Henry does wrap up the anarchy incredibly successfully. It's, it's probably not paraphrasing to say that he does that. Um but what that means is that they, they own territories from, from kind of Hadrian's Wall in the north to the Pyrenees Mountains in the south. That, that is a vast swathe of lands. Probably no one since Charlemagne has controlled that much of Western Europe. Um, and there's a reason you know, it gets called the Angevin Empire. I try and make the argument that this wasn't really an empire in, in the true senses of the word, but holding that, vast amount of land in the days when your only way of passing a message was via a a horse and a rider, just controlling that, that span of lands was difficult. They were all held together by the personalities of those people. So Aquitaine was loyal to Eleanor as its Duchess. Didn't particularly like people coming in and trying to impose themselves on Aquitaine. And then Anjou Normandy and England were loyal to Henry in um, in Anjou's case as Geoffrey's son, in Normandy and England's case as Henry I's grandson. So it's, there's an incredibly personal level of loyalty that is holding all of this together. There are very little other ties that keep that group of lands together. So Anjou and Normandy have traditionally been fairly... Um, opposed to each other, personal ties of loyalty. There's very little that keeps these lands together. They're quite disparate culturally. So the south of France around Aquitaine is a very different place. It has this kind of lively, light uh, atmosphere to it compared to the north of France around Normandy, which is considered much more austere. And and then England obviously is a, a whole separate entity across the channel kind of thing, albeit fairly closely tied to Normandy. So there is little to keep these things together. They all have different laws, different cultures, different practices, and that's murder to to organise and to keep together. So that's why Henry is zipping around all over the place. Eleanor is frequently left as regent in England or regent in Normandy or even regent in Anjou, and eventually she'll be sent back to Aquitaine to kind of rule in Aquitaine. And there is this element, this feeling that they have to be apart more than they're together and, and they, because they can't, they, they need to be in more than one place at, at one time. So they can't just travel around together and live in each other's pockets. And ultimately in the long term, that creates a problem because I don't, I don't think they ever make an effort to try and bring those territories together. That's why I try and argue that they don't try and forge an empire. They don't try and, and normalize laws and customs and practices across that vast span of land to make things easier. They kind of leave them as, as individual entities, which really makes it a lot harder to rule all of them or to have any kind of long-term, long-standing control over the, the whole. So you, you've got Henry always running around firefighting, which is has got to be far from ideal. It's not a great way to be ruling. And then I think the other main problem that they face, as I say, until their sons are old enough to cause trouble, really, is Louis. You know, Eleanor's ex sat in Paris looking at this vast block of power that they have. So Henry is a king of England, but he also owns more of France than Louis does. He's Louis's liege man in France, but also has this independence as king of England, which makes it a really delicate, fragile relationship that they kind of struggle to balance. But Louis, and later his son, so you know the Capetian crown in Paris, is freaked out by the power and the threat that Henry and Eleanor have accumulated. And so they immediately, almost as soon as the two are married, Louis is looking for ways to get between them, to break them up, to break up this block of power that they have because they're a threat to his crown. You know, if they own more of France than he does, who's the real King of France. And so I I think between juggling, trying to control all of this jumble of, of different lands and territories, while Louis is actively campaigning to to undermine their control of all of them was kind of a recipe for disaster that that makes it impressive that they hang on to all of this stuff for so long
0: yeah, I think it's a good point you make about the a lack of um kind of cultural ties the the governmental ties that we just never see and I think we, we this is one of the problems that kind of haunts England in continental Europe for its entire history really you know we see it through whether it's the entire angevin empire like you say or it's just the the tiny little cluster that we kind of still call gascony around bordeaux during the 14th century there's always a separation isn't there between kind of england and the continental um lands And and it's part of the balance of being King of France's liege man in
1: those territories that you're, you're not, you don't own those lands. Really. You're not in control in the way that Henry is in England as King of England. And if he wanted to normalize everything across that and call it an empire, Louis was always going to block that. He's going to have to get Louis permission to do it, or he's going to have to start a war for control of France, neither of which Henry seems particularly interested in or, or willing to do. So you end up with this, this weird situation where, you think when England conquers Wales, eventually, part of what goes on there is that English law is installed in Wales and English customs are installed in Wales and, you know, places like Conway Castle are planted in Wales. These settlements are planted everywhere. It just doesn't really happen with the continental possessions under Henry and, and Eleanor. They're sort of left in the situation that they were. They're, they're brought together by the people, but they're not brought together in any kind of meaningful, coherent way.
0: Yeah, I always find it interesting and it's it's almost impossible not to boil down the relationship between England and France in the medieval period down to the fact that two kings have a very difficult relationship, whether that king is William the Conqueror or, you know, Philip Augustus, the, the son of, of Louis VII of France. The fact that a king of England owns land in the kingdom of France just creates this very strange kind of two kings in it one does, the, kind of situation. The king of, of France is always
1: it? keen to point out that, that the king of England is there as his liege man. So for Normandy, you you owe allegiance to the king of France. And for one king to owe allegiance to another is always tricky, which is well, why you often see kings of England will send their sons or something to go and do homage to the king of France, because they don't want to be seen to be kneeling in front of a king of France. And they, they want to be seen as being, uh, you know, the exact equal of the king of France. And so they won't kneel to them and do homage for a piece of land because that highlights the fact that you're you're beneath them in the social structure for those lands in France and so it's it's always such a complex juggling act of of maintaining the homage that you owe to the king of France without appearing to be subservient to him any more than you absolutely have to
0: yeah like it like I said it's it's always something that I've been interested in and you know whether it's you're talking about Henry and Eleanor or Edward the Second, like you said, sending, unknowingly well, in a sense, sending Edward the Third as, as Prince Edward to the French court to swear allegiance for um, English held in in France. It's it's it underpins the entire relationship between the two kingdoms. So it's uh, yeah, always been a very very interesting. And um, I think, like I said, you can boil down the entire relationship down to that that one fact, all caused by uh, by William the Conqueror. So thanks for that one, Will. Um, We've already kind of touched on, and you've mentioned several times about um, Eleanor and Henry's sons causing problems. Um, do you want to just give us a quick rundown on what those problems are? Because that's that's a pretty huge part of their relationship it is. towards so, the end,
1: isn't it? I mean, the the three kind of adult sons by this point that caused trouble, uh, and it really kicks off in eleven seventy three. We've got the the oldest is called Henry. Obviously, he's called Henry. Um, and so he is crowned in his father's lifetime. The only time that happens, which is a a French tradition that's supposed to help the succession. So if you think about the problems with succession from, from William II to Henry I, from Henry I to Stephen, from Stephen to Henry II, Henry II's answer to this is to adopt that Capetian thing of crowning your heir in, in your own lifetime. So that as soon as you die, there is already another King there. So he's known then as Henry, the young King. Um, never quite get known as Henry III. Um, So we've got Henry the Young King, and then we've got Richard next, who will later become Richard I, the Lionheart. Um, And we've got Geoffrey, who um, is kind of... Richard is in Aquitaine, so he was given control of Aquitaine as his mother's heir there. Geoffrey is given um, Brittany, so he's kind of Duke of Brittany uh, and ruling there. And... This is where really those games that we were talking about from, from Louis begin to bear fruit. So you get Henry the Young King is crowned, but he's not really given any power or authority. He's, he's having a, a good laugh on the, the tournament circuit in Europe. You know, very much he is, his lads on tour, his 18 to 30 holidays, off around the tournament circuit in Europe, getting rich and famous and having an absolute whale of a time, but he's got no real authority and so when he goes and visits he ends up married to to Louis's daughter um again you know you get this weird situation of he's married to his mom's ex-husband's daughter um and so he goes to visit his father-in-law and Louis starts to drip this poison in his ear you know if you're a king you've been crowned why why have you got no power why do, what's your dad doing why isn't he letting you have all this stuff you know he's while he's in Paris, Louis treats him as King of England. And he's very clearly winding Henry up to go home and start some beef with his dad. And this is what works. And, and what is striking to me is how often this exact same ploy will work with Henry and Eleanor's sons. Um, so in 1173, we, we get into a situation where Henry... Richard and Geoffrey all rebel against their dad, and this is often framed as being because of Henry II's unwillingness to delegate power. You know, he's an absolute control freak who won't let go of any of the reins anywhere, and so his sons kick against this because they want authority. But again, I'd say that wasn't the case. Richard had pretty much control in Aquitaine. Yes, Henry II is still in overall command, but he's given pretty much a free reign. He's been invested as Duke of Aquitaine. Geoffrey has Brittany and he's given pretty much a free reign there. I think the problem lies with Henry the Young King. And I think there is something about him. I mean, lots of the Chronicles talk about him being quite feckless, a bit arrogant, maybe not serious enough. He d- he's not doesn't seem to have this aptitude for rule. And I wonder whether Henry II sees that in his son. And that's why he's withholding power. He's, he's trying to, to get Henry to learn how to be a King. And Henry's not doing a very good job of it. Henry, the young King just doesn't seem like he's up for it. And so Henry isn't giving him the power and authority. And I think it makes it worse because his younger brothers are getting some of that power and authority. Um, And so it, th- this kind of kicks off because Henry wants to marry off John, the youngest brother, who's, you know, just a a small child at the time. Henry's looking for a marriage for him. And as part of it, he offers to give three castles in Anjou as a dowry. Uh, so this is what Henry, the young King uses as kind of the, the the fuse to ignite the problems. He says, "You, you can't give away these castles without consulting me. You know, I'm, I'm a King too. I should have a say in all of this. And also how come my baby brother gets three castles and I've got nothing. And so we end up in the situation in 1173, where those three older brothers, Henry the Young King, Richard and Geoffrey, all rebel against, um, against Henry. And I think perhaps th- that it was more to do with Henry the Young King being the problem than anything else. Doubtless Richard and Geoffrey joined in because they saw a chance to get a bit more of the, the family pie. Um, Eleanor is captured trying to leave Aquitaine, and, and it's claimed we don't have there's no evidence to support this but so again you get this kind of mud thrown at eleanor it's claimed that she is heading for paris so she's going to join her sons and to to go to the court of her ex-husband which all seems a little bit weird to me one of the sources even says you know she dresses as a man to try and disguise herself in the on the journey which is a you know terrible thing for a medieval woman to do to dress herself as a man so again you're just piling on all of this scandal and and kind of Traditional tropes against women from this period. And so tradition tells us that she's behind this uprising, that she eggs her sons on to rebel against their dad, and that Henry then captures her and imprisons her for the rest of his life uh, until his death in 1189. And part of me would always question you know, what does Eleanor have to gain from driving a massive wedge into her own family between all of her sons and their father, between all of the lands that they control, between the inheritances that her sons are lined up? to have. It's all kind of quite nicely settled until this moment. And I question what Eleanor has to gain from doing this. And I I, I wonder, I mean I, I raised the question in the book, did did Eleanor kind of take one for the team? Did she accept some of the blame for the uprising to facilitate Henry quickly and easily forgiving his sons? Because this is Louis's plan absolutely working. And the best way to fix this is to get Henry and his sons reconciled again, but they've rebelled against him. He can't just allow that to go completely unpunished. And so I wonder whether Eleanor was was kind of willing to step in and take the blame for it, to kind of take the sting out of this, to take the poison out of Louis's plan, and to allow Henry to be quickly reconciled with his sons. Because they are they are. They're incredibly quickly forgiven. All of the barons that join the three brothers in their revolt are incredibly swiftly forgiven. Eleanor is the only one who is punished in any kind of long-term way for this, which seems really odd. But even then, you know, I question whether she is really punished to the extent that tradition would have us believe, which again, plays into this idea that perhaps this was, you know, she, she'd she gone to Aquitaine just before this happened. And, and again, tradition kind of paints this as um, some distance between her and Henry I would paint it as a, a reward for Eleanor for a job incredibly well done. You know she's she's now past childbearing age. She's given Henry a ridiculous number of children, plenty of sons, plenty of daughters. She's acted as regent all over the place for him, but she's never made a secret all of her life that her heart is absolutely in Aquitaine. What she wants to do is take Richard, teach him how to rule Aquitaine as its next duke, and and be where her, her heart is. So Henry Henry giving her control of Aquitaine and sending her there with Richard to teach him how to rule it, doesn't smack of of kind of vindictive, trying to get her out of the way to me. That That smacks to me of a thank you to his wife, a kind of retirement gift, a thank you very much, now go and do whatever makes you happy, kind of down in Aquitaine. And I think if you view their relationship in that way, then all of this has a, a slightly different angle on it, I think.
0: Yeah, and it's—I it, think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And you've actually answered my next question um, quite nicely, um, which was about Eleanor's involvement in in this in the nineteen uh, seventy-three in the eleven seventy-three um, kind of uprisings and rebellions. I've never really looked at it myself that way, but it does, like you said, it does make sense when you when you think about the relationship between. Eleanor and Henry, and her sons, and I. We can assume her her lack of relationship with with her ex husband. So yeah, that makes absolute sense. Um, obviously, she's we're pretty pretty much. We don't really know what she does for the for the next sort of decade and a half. The she, we think she was under house arrest. I mean, we we know roughly where she was at times, but um, like you said, the punishment. In a sense, doesn't really fit the crime of a um, a rebellious vassal uh, going against um, her liege lord, which is her That's a, an, seconds, an, an, is know, it. And you know, we
1: don't know too much about her for you know the next fifteen odd years, but we know she's kept primarily at Devise's Castle, which is one of her favourite castles. When she's regent of England, she bases herself at Devizes Castles. So. She's not put in a dungeon. She's put in her favorite place in England. Um, We know that throughout the rest of their, their marriage, she regularly attends court and court festivities, including when her sons are there. So if you think she's encouraged her sons into a revolt against their father, surely the first thing you would do is not let her be at court with her sons again to potentially cause that kind of trouble. But we have records of her being around her children at various court events, and I think one of the most interesting things is when it all takes a turn for the tragic. So Henry the Young King um, dies a little bit later in in open rebellion against Henry the Second, and Henry, we're told, is you know absolutely distraught. Whatever he may have thought about his son not being up to the role of king, he he seems to have been incredibly fond of Henry the Young King, um, and you know, these wor- words. Are reported to us that Henry said he'd rather he'd, he'd live longer to cost him more kind of thing than he would died young. Um, but when Henry, the young King dies, it's, it's to Eleanor that Henry turns for comfort. You know, he starts to spend more time with her and there's a sense that she's not really under house arrest anymore. She's moving about a lot more. It seems that Henry allowed her to go over to Rouen to visit Henry, the young King's tomb which isn't a man who's being cruel to a wife who's, you know, who he hates and he's keeping in prison. Um, I I think, yeah, you know, I, I suspect her imprisonment wasn't that, you know, her time in Aquitaine hadn't been incredibly successful. There's a chance to go back to England and retire there as as the Queen of England and live in a favourite castle, be around court, but, you know, retire from sort of public life a little bit, if you like. But I think it's striking that it seems... That in moments of tragedy and trauma it's to eleanor that henry still turns when he wants support and comfort
0: yeah the more the more you speak the more it seems like it was at both a very transactional relationship but also probably quite a a respectful a mutual respect was there between the two as two powerful rulers in their own right who Probably gained quite a lot from their relationship, and like you said earlier, it's it is impressive with hindsight that they were able to keep this empire of of sorts, we'll call it, um, together for as for as long as they did. Because um, you know, jumping ahead, it, it does collapse. Yeah, and, I, and I think it's striking that you it? know, so, I think Henry yeah, I must think...
1: have learned a lot from Eleanor, who was ten years older than him, had been Queen of France for fifteen years you know, by the time they married, before he'd been King of England, I find it impossible that he didn't learn an awful lot about what he does and the way he behaves and how he rules and how he administers power from Eleanor. And so he would owe her a huge debt for that. Um, And I do think, you know, it's, it's tempting and we should always be wary of seeing love and romance, as I said earlier, they're they're whisking each other away. But I think we can also be wary of being too cynical about the fact that this was a a transactional relationship, exactly as you said, that they both gained a lot from their marriage, but that doesn't mean they didn't become incredibly close and incredibly fond of each other. You know, arranged marriages can lead to love. You know, I think it's it's easy to to go to both sides of that scale to say it was all about Hollywood-style romantic swashbuckling love but it's dangerous to be too cynical and say you know they probably hated each other's guts they just happened to be married i think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle that they they got married for incredibly pragmatic reasons that were t- more to do with politics than knowing each other but in the course of their incredibly successful marriage i find it hard to believe they didn't come to to be incredibly fond of each other even if you know we can't talk about love at this kind of distance but i think they must have been fond of each other and and had a deep mutual respect for each other
0: absolutely and obviously we can talk about um political love and courtly love for hours and hours that's a whole different gay, uh, kind of episode in it in itself you know like you said earlier the, the south of france around aquitaine is is known for this completely um, different way of looking at the world and whether you put much weight into courtly love as a as a thing or not there is there is an expectation of a of a of a marriage versus relationships you have elsewhere. But yeah, I think it's very easy for us as, as 21st century, um, people looking back to go, well, yeah, there's no proof of love because how would you ever love somebody who does this to you or, you know, encourages your sons to rebels, or etc. So yeah, I think, yeah, looking at it with a bit of humility does, um, does change the entire complexity of, of Henry and Eleanor in a, in a, in a more interesting way. So ultimately they eventually, obviously, they live out their lives. Henry um, dies in 1189. Um, Eleanor continues to live for a fair few years after. But what would you say are the lasting legacies or the, you know, um, what what do we still see today of Henry and Eleanor's um, marriage? Why are they so I think important? Th-
1: both of them as individuals stood out amongst their contemporaries and put them together and they become this huge... Blockbuster power couple, so Eleanor, I think really stands out um amongst her contemporaries and throughout the medieval period, like I said before you know she she'd led at least three medieval lives she'd been a queen of France and been on crusade, then she'd been a queen of England, kind of fighting against the the king of France and trying to hold her family together and maintain her lands and all of that and then after her husband dies, she lives sort of the fifteen year life of trying to protect the kingdom for Richard while he's away on crusade and then captured and then desperately trying to prop up John as he does his best to destroy everything that they've kind of built over previous years. And she, she dies just before it all falls apart. So she is an absolutely incredible, fascinating character who really, really sticks out from the medieval period. And I think Henry too is just a fascinating character in his own right. So he's determined at the beginning of his life in his, in his late teens, To head around hoovering up all of these rights of his grandfather, Henry I. You know, everything that he does is measured by, if my granddad had that, I want it. And he's just desperately trying to rebuild all of that. But he seems utterly disinterested in all of the the trappings of royalty. So this guy who controls all of that land from the North Sea down to the Pyrenees Mountains puts no effort into kind of crafting it into an empire in any way because he just doesn't seem interested. And there's such a, a juxtaposition there of a man who is determined to have all of his rights but has none of the ambition to be a kind of imperial figure either. So I think separately they're absolutely fascinating and incredibly compelling people who achieve incredible things. Put them together and they're just this, you know, it's Jay-Z and Beyonce of the, the Middle Ages. They're just this power couple Um and I think why we're still so fascinated by them now and what we we see in their legacy is that their match and this friction, particularly with Louis and the Capetian crown for me goes a long way to setting the course of Western European politics for centuries to follow that rivalry between England and France. They're kind of put on a collision course by Henry and Eleanor's relationship and their relationship to to Louis and the Capetian crown. So We can add into that this kind of possibility of romance, but we combine it with huge political power. We've got scandal going on all over the place. We've got a relationship that appears in crisis to the extent that there is gossip all over Europe about what's going on between them. And I just, you know, we haven't changed that much in 800 years. That sounds like a reality TV program today. We just want to see the gossip. We want to know what's going on. That's the stuff that sells magazines about celebrities today. And there there is just enough that we don't have answers about with Henry and Eleanor for for it to be interesting, to pique our interest, for us to want to gossip about them and understand what's going on behind those closed doors.
0: Absolutely agree. And I know it's something that you you have said multiple times is that everything is medieval. And I think it's and again, hopefully it still sells magazines today. Obviously that's the reason that that we're we're here talking today. But yeah, I think they are. It's very, very easy when we look at history. You know, we talk about the great men of history. Let's extend this for, this, for the sake of this to the, to the great people of history. It's very easy to make everything seem like it's on a collision course to today. But I think with Henry and Eleanor, it really is that. Like you said, the effort and the the problems of of their relationship and the ensuing problems of Richard and then John it really does set the scene for the Hundred Years' War, which sets the scene for, um, you know, the, the British Empire versus the the French, which sets us up for the, you know, the Napoleonic Conflicts all the way up to today when France and England randomly made friends at the start of the twenty 20th century. Um, but it really does give us a thousand years of history, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, usually I, I don't like to boil things down to, you know, this led to this led to this, but I think quite rightly, as you've said, um. It absolutely yeah, and I think we, case we should, with Henry As you say, either. we should
1: always be really cautious about picking things that are definitive moments in history. You know, maybe 1066. It has such an effect on England with the Norman invasion. But there there are so few moments like that that are actually really defining and definitive and, and change things so much. But I do think Henry and Eleanor's marriage is one of those things that genuinely sets the course of Western European politics for the next 800 years
0: yeah yeah really really um really interesting couple clearly obviously myself and and you both talk about Henry and Eleanor quite a lot so I don't think anyone listening is going to be surprised that we've come to that conclusion but just to wrap up with Henry and Eleanor before we kind of end the show what's one kind of interesting fact or anecdote tidbit whatever it is that you think everyone should know about, either Henry or Eleanor? Or oh, crikey, there's
1: together. so many. Um, <clears throat> I think Henry's genuine hatred of everything to do with royalty is a fascinating element of his character. So um, we know that he and Eleanor have this crown-wearing ceremony. So amongst Norman kings, crown-wearing ceremonies were a big thing. you do them at Easter, at Christmas, and all of that kind of thing to reinforce your position as king. In 1158, so a few years after uh, Henry becomes king, he and Eleanor have this crown-wearing ceremony at Worcester Cathedral. Henry takes his crown off at the end, puts it on the altar at Worcester and says, oh, I'm not wearing one of those ever again. And he literally never wears a crown for the rest of his life. Just not interested in it. Um, we know that he would, uh, Thomas Beckett, when he was chancellor, would put on big, lavish banquets and, and feasts and everything else. Henry would ruck up halfway through, He'd been out riding all day. He'd ride his horse into Thomas Beckett's banqueting hall, um, hop off in the middle, jump over the table, put his dusty boots up on the, the table and kind of just to wind Beckett up. But also because he just wasn't interested in in all of that pageantry. And again, you know, when Henry wants to negotiate a marriage for his son to the, the king of France's daughter, he sends Thomas Beckett to go and do all the pageantry he doesn't he can't be bothered to do it. So he says to Thomas, you know, you go make this big entrance into Paris, I'll turn up a few days later and it'll be fine. And so we get this huge procession of of carts, beer barrels, jewels, monkeys, dogs, all sorts of things heading into Paris. And, and it almost has the opposite effect because everyone in Paris is looking at this, thinking, well, if this is Henry's minister and he's this wealthy and impressive crikey, what's the king going to be like? You know, everyone thinks Henry is going to be this kind of huge imperial kind of figure and he just can't be bothered with any of that. And I think for a man who had so much, it's an incredibly human thing that he just can't be doing with it. Um, I think the other fascinating thing about Henry that that isn't talked about very often is that um, in 1185, so towards the end of his reign, he is, he's asked to go and be king of Jerusalem. Um, the Patriarch of Jerusalem turns up in England and kind of says, you know, your granddad was King of Jerusalem. We're in a bit of, of a mess here. What we really need is an incredible King. And there's nobody better than you, Henry. You know, they, they, they literally ride through France to get to Henry, which must've been a slap in the face to the Capetian Kings. Um, and so they literally almost beg him to go and be King of Jerusalem. And Henry just, no, can't be dealing with it. Just not interested in it at all. um, and and because and part of that is because Henry becomes this huge peacemaker figure of respect across all of Europe, you know rulers from everywhere when Philip Augustus becomes king of France, Henry is like his tutor, he's like his mentor um Philip repays him incredibly harshly for for that kindness, but literally all of the rulers of of Europe are looking to Henry as the main man he He is just that important but so utterly disinterested in all of the trappings of Kingship. Um, and I think Eleanor as well, you know, aside from the whole impressive traveling around Spain to, to collect wives for a son to take on the way to crusade, raising Richard's ransom, almost single-handedly delivering it personally to Germany, you know, in her seventies and just being a a massively politically active and dominant force in Europe still kind of well into her late seventies. Um, Eleanor is, is often considered to have been a good lord. So she she engages. We often see Eleanor as someone who is outside all of those expected norms of a medieval woman. She's some kind of proto-feminist figure who won't play by the rules. But we do see her frequently engaging with exactly those rules of of queenship, of all the traditional expectations. So in 1192, after Henry's dead, uh, one chronicler talks about her as Dowager Queen visiting Ely. And she finds the people there in, in a parlour state you know they they dead aren't being buried they're not eating very well they've got no shoes on they're all crying and all this sort of stuff and it turns out the bishop has placed them all under interdict um and and the chronicler describes eleanor dropping all of her own business and immediately going to find the bishop to to get this matter resolved so she's considered in the the most traditional sense a good lord to the people she's kind of responsible for looking after and she does engage with those roles those traditional stereotypes, if you like, of the the dowager queen and the the soft power that women were were able to operate. So for all of the massively impressive outside the the box stuff that she does to break molds, she's also happy to work well within the mold when it's the right thing to do. Awesome,
0: yeah. I mean, I have mad respect for anyone that can be so successful yet so uninterested, like you said, about Henry the Second. He's he's definitely a man after my own heart. I would say. Um, the least effort with the most outcome is is always the uh, the the path you would choose, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I think as as we we're, we're kind of showing that we could probably talk about these two for for hours, if not days on end. Which I'm more than happy to, but I don't know if uh, I don't know if the the chap uh, editing this will be will be best pleased if we do that. Um, but just to wrap up the episode, we always ask the same questions at the end, just for a bit of fun, more than anything. I think knowing you and knowing your work, where we're going to go with these two questions. Um, but first of all, if you could go back in time, where would you go? Utterly unsurprisingly,
1: otherwise? to anyone who's ever taught, heard me talk about anything, um, London in the spring of 1483. You know, I I would love to see those events firsthand. The the accession of Richard the Third, um, all of the stuff that happens after the death of Edward the Fourth. I would love to get in amongst all of that and have a better understanding of what was going on. What people thought, what they understood, what what their motives were in some of what they were doing. What did people know out on the street in those days? You know, yeah, I wouldn't be able to resist that one.
0: Yeah, I could. I could have almost written that I'm answer so I think, before you. <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty nailed on that, wasn't it? <laughs> in a very very good way. I mean, it would. Uh, yeah, it would definitely answer a lot of questions, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, it would. Uh it would certainly be a good one. I've never been I've never been disappointed with anybody's answers so far. It's always a great question to ask that one, I think. Um and the kind of the last question is if you could bring anybody from history through to 2023, who would it be?
1: And again, hopefully I might why? surprise you a bit with this one. Uh it would be a 13th century friar by the name of Roger Bacon. He's a, he's a fascinating guy um who he's a, he's a big thinker he studies a lot he's credited with inventing the magnifying glass he wrote down the first ever recipe for gunpowder you know he didn't invent these things but he was he wrote down the first time we have a written recipe for how to make gunpowder um fascinated in in studies from the middle east and engaging with all of that but he he wrote this one treatise in which he he predicts cars he predicts powered ships he predicts airplanes and all kinds of other things. He's he's credited with having this um, automaton head that was kind of a brass head that some people said was possessed by a demon, but you could ask it any question, it would answer it. So early Google, you know, this guy is talking about, he's in he's in the middle of the 13th century talking about cars, ships on the ocean. And he says, you know, there'll, there'll be a, a horseless carriage that will be powered by a form of engine that won't require any kind of power from a, a living being. There'll be ships at sea that won't need men to row them or sails. You know, they'll be powered in other ways and they'll just have someone steering them. He says there'll be, you know, man will perfect the art of flight and we'll be able to fly like birds. You'll sit in the middle of a machine and it will flap around you in such a way that it will be able to fly kind of thing. I kind of, I'd like to bring him to 2023 so that I could get him to look around and tut a bit and say, what, what took you so long? Why did it take you seven hundred years from me saying one day there'll be a car before someone invented a car? And I, I, I think, I think what I would also like to do but, is, yeah. if people always say when, if we brought people from the medieval world to today, they'd be utterly amazed by the world around them. And I think someone like Roger Bacon just wouldn't be. He, he probably wonder, you know, if if I showed him my phone, if I gave Roger Bacon my phone and said this has more computing power than you can ever possibly imagine in the palm of my hand, I can connect to anybody in the world with this. Um, you know, it can do complex computations in a a matter of milliseconds. And I can, I can talk to anyone anywhere in the world. And he'd say, wow, you know, all of the world's problems must be over with technology like that. And you'd be like, no, we use this to, to try and guess a five letter word every morning. Or to, to slag off our football team if they don't do very well on a Saturday. Because I th- I don't think they'd be amazed by modern life. I think they'd be amazed at the stupid ways that we use modern life.
0: Uh, yeah. Again, as I've said, pretty much every episode so far, I'm that's my favourite answer so far. I think that's a, such a great use of 2023 for for history. I think again, people always talk about, oh, if you could take an iPhone back to the 13th century, people would be blown away. No, take a can of peas. That would really change their blow their minds because you know that's the thing that affects them day to day. But yeah, that, that's, that would be great. I would love to hear that conversation between, between you two about, about cars, Wordle, Man United being inconsistent, whatever it is. Yeah, that would, that would be, that would be great. Um, again, awesome answers, Matt. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, that is a perfect way to end the episode, I think. And as always, I cannot say thank you enough, Matt, for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast. It has been a genuine pleasure to talk to you today about two people that I am personally very, very interested in. And I'm sure everyone listening to this will have had as much of a blast as I had. But as always, you've got the floor for as long or as little as you want to talk about any upcoming projects, share any social media handles or anything like that. I'm going to mute my mic and let you talk for as long as you want.
1: Um, Thank you so much for having me to start <laughs> off with. It's been an absolute pleasure to to talk about Henry and Eleanor for as long as I've been allowed to. We could have talked for an awful lot longer. Um, but I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope people have got perhaps a, a slightly different perspective on Henry and Eleanor from what they might normally get. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, I've written a book about Henry and Eleanor, uh, it's sort of a joint biography of the two of them. I've also written a book about the anarchy, which kind of preceded Henry and Eleanor. Um, most of my books are, are about the Wars of the Roses, probably, uh, particularly fascinated with Richard III. So I've written a biography of Richard III as well. Um, I am currently working on what might be the sequel to the Henry and Eleanor book. So I'm working on a book about Richard the first time in captivity in Germany on his way back from crusade. So why that happened, what it meant, what it led to, um, all of the fallout from, from that particular episode, which still involves Eleanor. So um, I still get to have her hanging around um and I've also got a project lined up on a biography of um, Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, so the Kingmaker from the Wars of the Roses, heading back to the Wars of the Roses at some point in the future there to to get a closer look at Warwick, who I think is a an absolutely fascinating character who probably doesn't get explored as deeply as he might be. um I am on Facebook and Twitter at Matt Lewis, author. I'm on Instagram at Matt Lewis History. I don't know why I've got a different handle on Instagram. It's a stupid idea. Um, and I um, host co- co-host a Gone Medieval podcast for History Hit, so you can find that wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, I do an episode every Saturday, hopefully looking at interesting things from the the medieval period. And otherwise, I I host bits of documentaries and things for History Hit. Um, so. That's, you know, we're kind of uh, a a dedicated history subscription channel. So there's a a great YouTube channel for history hits. You can get a good taster of everything that we do. Uh, And otherwise it is a a subscription service. You pay monthly and you get access to some incredible history documentaries spanning all of human history. Um, And you can also put up with a little bit more of me if I haven't put you off in the last hour or so.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that, Matt. And I know it's probably a bad practice for a podcast host to say, but I cannot recommend the Gone Medieval podcast enough. Matt and Dr. Kat Jarman, his co-host, do a fantastic job, and it's genuinely one of my absolute favourite podcasts to listen to every week. I was listening to it earlier before I even came on here to record. But to read more about Eleanor and Henry, you absolutely must check out Matt's fantastic article in edition 13 of The Historian's Magazine. And as always, make sure to sign up to our newsletter to keep up to date with everything history from around the UK and beyond. Once again, Matt, thank you so much. Thank you
1: very much for having me, Chris. It's been a pleasure.
0: For coming on the show.